There are two readings this morning, um, one from Luke chapter 6 verse 20 and one from Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Luke 6, then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. And in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With us covering the Beatitudes uh, one at a time, uh, it won't be vast readings, I imagine, for the next few weeks. They're short, relatively short readings, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll, the Lord will speak to us uh, through them. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity of looking at your word. And as we uh, come further into looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular for the next few weeks, the Beatitudes... We ask in Jesus' name, your name, Lord Jesus, that you would open this passages to our hearts. We ask that we would be convicted, challenged, exhorted, and encouraged uh, as your spirit sees fit, and that your name alone would be honored. And so, Lord, as always, I ask that I would decrease and you would increase, and that your word would fall on good hearts, good soil this morning for the glory and honor of your name alone. Amen. So last week, uh, I see, as I said, we're taking a break from the sermon, or a, a sermon series on Romans over the summer. Uh, not that it's looking very summery at the moment. And we're starting a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which I have called the Jesus Manifesto. And I started last week by giving a quote from Karl Marx from the, his Communist Manifesto and gave the picture that there are many different manifestos or value systems out there vying for your allegiance. Uh, so what value system do you live to? Consciously or unconsciously, every person in this room and everyone who's listening on YouTube or for podcast will be living up to some value system. And certainly our society, our New Zealand Ministry of Education system, our media, the music, the YouTube, algorithms, they are all offering you value systems. There is a choice for you to make. Well, Jesus gives a manifesto, a value system, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and he lays out his way, his values for his followers to live up to. So we had a look at uh, last week at how Matthew had set the scene building tension and anticipation with his Jewish audience. I mean, Matthew wrote his gospel, of course, to everyone in the world. But in particular, his heart was uh, making the connections between the Old Testament and between Jesus and the Old Testament uh, and um, in a way that would be winsome for some Jewish people who would listen to it. And in that, in that gospel, and he's building up the tension towards the Sermon on the Mount, he portrays Jesus as a new and better Moses. He says he'd gone into Egypt, he'd been baptized, symbolically crossing the Red Sea. He'd then gone into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted, symbolically following the Jewish nation of Moses in the, the 40 years in the wilderness. And then he gives the details of Moses going up the mountain. Right, Moses went up the mountain to receive the law and bring down the Ten Commandments. Here Jesus went up the mountain, but he didn't receive the teaching from God. But as Emmanuel, God with us, he gave his disciples the teaching. So Matthew is effectively saying that just as Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, this is absolutely critical for the Old Testament. Key moment. So Matthew is telling and screaming out to anyone who's reading his book 
that the Jesus Manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, is something we need to prioritize to listening to and to live out. Right? So, but there are two different recorded sermons that Jesus gave that are remarkably similar. One is in Matthew's gospel and one is in Luke's gospel. Interestingly, the sermon on, one's called the Sermon on the Mount and the other is called the Sermon on the Plains. He gave it on the plains. Lots of Bible scholars geek on out on the similarities and differences between the sermons. They ask questions like, hey, is this the same message, but different uh, 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 interpretations of what Matthew and Luke remembered of it? Or are they two different messages? Either is possible. It's possible that he went up the mountain, found a little bit of a flat bit on the, on the, on the top and gave the sermon there. And it's just Matthew and Luke's different recollections. But I suspect that they're two different sermons. Uh, and the reason I suspect that is often you have a look right now, as we know, we're right in the midst of election season, and politicians, they go from town to town to town. And if they're giving stump speeches, often the sort of stump speeches they'll give, it'll be mostly similar, uh, but with a few differences. If they're in a rural area, they might mention a few things that'll they'll try and win some rural votes. If they're in a city, they might mention a few things that'll win urban votes or whatever. They'll, they'll, they will, they will uh, tailor it to the audience that they are going. But there's a lot of similarities. And I suspect uh, it's the same here with Jesus. And so we get to see, have a look at the differences there. In, uh, in Luke's gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then there's Luke's gospel. Then Jesus turned to the disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Can you notice the difference? All right. So what Matthew is focusing on spiritual poverty or spiritual humility, and Luke is focusing on physical or material poverty. So we're going to look at one, the grace God gives to those who have in this life material poverty and the spiritual danger of financial wealth, and two, the blessing of spiritual poverty and the danger of spiritual pride. Are you with me? That's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I know the first one's a bit tough for us here in the modern West, but it is, it, is, it is Bible, and it's interesting looking at the two differences between Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. So I grew up in the rough and tumble of Nelson College, a boys' school. In that school, on the social ladder of the boys' school, it's a bit like an animal kingdom, I have to say, in a sort, of, sort of a pecking order. And on that pecking order, I was the food that the amoeba ate. At least that's how I remember it. It probably wasn't quite as tough as that. You know, survival was the goal, and I was being overlooked was the norm. In fact, being overlooked was good because if I was getting attention, it was normally being bullied, or at least that's how it felt. So I never really experienced being the center of attention. I was always picked last for the teams when you choose, and all those sorts of things. Not, I never, I can't remember a single time where my my opinion was valued in a peer group. Uh, at, at the school. Anyway, the years rolled by and I ended up in West Auckland as an assistant minister in a, in a church that had many different cultures and it was a thriving multicultural church. One of the cultures at this church was this beautiful Cook Island ethnic group. They actually made up one of the worship teams of the church that was up there and they had sort of banjos and, uh, and Cook Island drums. It was quite cool. So you get sort of Cook Island worship uh, once a month when they were on. And after the, um, often usually once every month or two, the, at the end of the service, all the Cook Islands would gather in the hall, the, the, the church hall, and they would have this huge feast, this kai kai, which is really cool. I remember turning up and I was sort of um, um, there and all of them were there and I was sitting at the back and I was seeing like all this whole big family. I thought, man, their culture is really cool. I was, I'm born in the wrong culture, the whole sort of family dynamic. 
And so there I was sitting at the back and uh, the, on the Sunday, and there was this top table, and there was all this uh, amazing food that was there. And uh, there was the senior Cook Island elder, Rowie. He's gone to be with the Lord since then. And he, he looks at me right at the back, and he says, Papa Alistair, you, up to the front. And of course, within the Cook Island um, um, culture, the ministers are up the front. It's, it's a bit problematic, I have to say, but that's how they run. Anyway, so there I was, dragged up to the front, up to the head seat. And there, there was Cook Island with all the elders. And there was this massive plate of, of oysters and all these delicacies and everything else. It was, uh, uh, it was with all the, my past rejection from my past childhood hurts and whatever, it was overwhelming, embarrassing, and wonderful all at the same time, from social status poverty to riches. Well, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the fatherless, the poor, the outcasts, the slaves, the forgotten, the rejected are invited to, by King Jesus to be part of the family. They're invited to be first. They're invited to the wedding banquet of our Lord. They're invited to the heavenly kaikai, where the Lord Jesus is inviting them to the top table. God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. So if you're hurting, rejected, struggling to put food on the table, you are nothing in society where the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, Jesus is inviting you to his table. God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Now, don't mistake me, material wealth is not a sin. But if you believe the Bible is God's word, there's warnings about wealth and a grace that's given to those who rejected fatherless slaves or poor. This is just pure Bible. Right? God is a God, father of the fatherless. He chose often the poor widows. You get to see them. This is just littered all throughout the scriptures. God often chooses those that society calls a least. And then God gives dangers right through the scriptures, the dangers of material wealth, which I would imagine would apply to pretty much all of us here this morning. This is one of the dangers of wealth. Uh, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation, are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people are craving money, have wandered from the truth faith, and pierced themselves with many sorrows. We're talking about Christians there who love Jesus, uh, but the pursuit of money and material wealth, the job, the income, the busyness of life, and they've wandered uh, out from the faith. In Luke's uh, 18, uh, another, another tough passage for someone like me, you know, relative material affluence by global standards. Uh, this is what Jesus says. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? He replied, what's impossible for people is possible 
with God. So yes, it's true Jesus didn't give that command to uh, uh, all the wealthy people, so we don't, we're not actually having to sell our houses up and go camp out at the domain this morning. That's pretty good. Uh, but for those that have wealth, often they think they've arrived. It's harder for them to acknowledge their need of God, their dependence on Him. It's harder for them to acknowledge their spiritual poverty. It's not surprising the countries where there's often corrupt politicians, uh, vast numbers of poor, the economy's terrible. Often in those very same countries, there are thriving Christian churches. Have you been to, to developing nations? Have you guys noticed that? Often they're develop, thriving churches. And the ancient Roman critics of Christianity noticed it was the woman, the poor, the slaves, and the children, those that were beneath content for the paterfamilia, who actually responded to the gospel the most. Now, I'm not suggesting you vote for the party that will most likely bring a wrecking ball to the, to the economy, uh, a vote for, for us to be poor, nor is I suggesting we idolize poverty. For the Jewish people who are living in Babylon, God said to Jeremiah, pray to the Babylon that, that was the evilest city in the day. Pray for it, not against it. Why? Because the Jewish people are living there. And if it has peace and prosperity, so will you. So it's good for us to pray for New Zealand, pray for our businesses and farms, pray for our government, for if New Zealand has peace and prospers, we will have it as well. But the Bible is clear. God has a special grace, a special compassion for the fatherless, the slaves, the poor, and the rejected. God is inviting them to the top table. All right? You're included. God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. And there is a warning for someone like me and people and Christians in the West. I know this is not the, the nicest sermon to say, but it's actually a warning given to me about material uh, uh, wealth. And it's saying it's not secure, it's not guaranteed, it can fly away at any point. These are all passages through the Bible. I, or I can die at any point and I can't take it with me. And it carries with it temptations. We need to be aware of that. That these are the things God blesses those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if there are any who are wealthy here this morning and in comparison to 90% of Christians on the planet, we're all in that boat this morning. You're thinking, well, this is a really terrible passage of Scripture. Why would Jesus say such a horrible thing as that? Then Matthew's gospel carries a different side of the coin, and it's about the blessings of spiritual poverty and the danger of spiritual pride. So Matthew actually was a tax collector, and I suspect he was probably quite wealthy. We know that because he actually was able to host Jesus and all the disciples in his house at large crowds of people. You've got to have some servants and resources to do that. And of course, Zacchaeus, who was another tax collector, uh, he gave yes away half his wealth. But even after he had done that, at zero notice, he was able to host this vast number of people in his house. And so uh, uh, Matthew, uh, looking at spiritual uh, poverty, says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Subtle difference. right? So no matter what our wealth or social status is, every single one of us can have spiritual poverty of being poor in spirit. So what is spiritual poverty? Well, in a society that is obsessed with self-esteem, making people feel better about themselves, you know, it's obsessed with therapists and counselors saying you're enough and you're good enough and you're wonderful and you're special and you're this and you're amazing. That's the world today, isn't it? We've got an upside down kingdom and God says, blessed are those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt within themselves. Blessed are those who realize they're not enough in of themselves. Blessed are those who realize they have no merit of themselves that can make it to eternity. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
It's acknowledging those who acknowledge our desperate need of God. Those that acknowledge that we desperately need him. All right? That in compar- all of us are in our own various states of good or bad, but in comparison to God, our God's holiness and perfection, we're all spiritually bankrupt. Yes, we're created in God's image and have much wonderful about us, but there's a freedom and a blessing in knowing we don't make the grade, but we're loved by God anyway. It was the sinners and the failures, the ones who in the world's eyes that were worthless, who were most attracted to Jesus. Why? Because they already knew they were sinners, but Christ loved them anyway. Their acknowledgement of their spiritual poverty, their moral brokenness, their being authentic with God was the first step, not the only step. We'll get to the other ones later as we go on with the Beatitudes. But it was the first step for them being blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what are the poor in spirit? They're people of forsaken pride, forsaken hiding their brokenness and sins, and they know they need God and have an attitude of, but by the grace of God, there go I. I'm only saved by God's grace. So there's this ancient hymn, uh, which is one of my favorites, and it goes as, who knows this hymn? First service, a lot of people should. All right, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fight, I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. Written in 1775, uh, Augustus uh, Toplady, he was born in 1740. Uh, he got saved in one of those Methodist camp meetings, revivals by Wesley, uh, but later had fights over Wesley about Calvinism. He became a Calvinist. Anyway, but we're not going to get into that. But anyway, but it's interesting. He's got an interesting life story. Uh, and when he wrote, and this is his hymn that he writes. And in this hymn, may I suggest are the keys of spiritual poverty here, being poor in spirit. Let's just go through it. Nothing in my hands I bring. What he's saying is that when I come to Jesus, my money, my wealth, my moral goodness, all these things, it's not going to get me into heaven. Simply to thy cross I cling. We are dependent on Jesus Christ, the work he has done on the cross. We are sinners in need of a savior. Naked, Come to thee for dress, recognizing that we've, you know, that sense of embarrassment, that sense that if 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 you were to know all of you here the worst things I've ever said or thought or done, just in the last week, actually, you I'd be rather embarrassed. I would be naked, right? And what do we come to Jesus to be clothed with Christ? Helpless. Look to thee for grace. We don't actually can't work this out on our own. <coughs> Foul or dirty, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Spiritual poverty right there from Augustus Top Lady, 1775. Poor in spirit. There's a, that's, it's recognizing our absolute need of God. Right? So, and you see this all throughout the scripture. There's the tar- parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, have mercy on me, a sinner, while the religious person lists how spiritually awesome he is. Or Paul, who gives this list of his accomplishments in the flesh, but then says he counts it all as loss in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. Perhaps lastly, I would say this. Being poor in spirit isn't taking ourselves too seriously. This is from C.S. Lewis. Who's read the book, The Screwtape Letters? There's a few. If you haven't, may I suggest 
you get it out. It is a classic. It's a great, on a cold, wet day, it's a great Sunday afternoon read. And this is a little quote from it. Uh, and of course, it's a senior devil talking to a junior devil. Uh, and uh, he calls the, the junior devil who's working on a person to destroy a Christian's life. They call him his patient. It's a, you know, but it's a patient not to heal them, but to destroy them. Anyway, your patient has become humble. Can you, have you drawn his attention to it? To the fact, catch him at the moment when he's been really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind that gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. I just love the English mannerisms, by the way. And almost immediately, I just picture C.S. Lewis writing that. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. Oh, this has been me at times. I'm really, really humble today. Um, if he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of this attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you'll wake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he'll merely laugh at you and go to bed. Screwtape letters, page 69. All right, so being poor in spirit is, isn't learning to take ourselves too seriously. You know, I just... I have seen at times these dour, glum Christians looking always at how spiritually prideful all the other Christians around them are. And then when they look at their own heart, they're sort of dumb and around and around they go. What level of it? And so there can be that sense that actually we acknowledge our feeble attempts, a little humor proportion at our feeble attempts at being poor in spirit isn't a bad thing. But may I suggest Jesus Christ offers the poor materially, and the rich, all who are willing to be poor in spirit, all who are willing to acknowledge their absolute need of Christ, a seat at his table. And to this heavenly banquet, we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning, as we have looked uh, at the dangers of material wealth and the blessing of the poor and the differences between that and also Matthew's gospel, I pray that regardless of where we are materially on this planet, there would be a genuine and deep and authentic spiritual humility that we would strive to acknowledge that we are in desperate need of you and to walk that out. And perhaps not to take ourselves too seriously at times, yes, but to know in the depths of our heart that we are saved by grace. And without your grace, we would be doomed. In Jesus' name, amen.